Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, part two of my interview with Dr. Eric Strachan. Enjoyed the time with Eric. And uh, again, his sports card insights can also be uh, psychological insights. I hope you enjoy the uh, the rest of this and enjoyed the first part as well. Thanks, sponsors. Top Spinini Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huckington Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So thanks, Eric. Thanks, listeners. Here it is. There was a point where I was thinking that SGC 10s looked like a really good opportunity. Somebody posted on Twitter that 2018 Topps Chrome was a great set, that they put out a lot of beautiful cards in that set. So I thought this is actually an empirical question. You can look at the graders and see are the grades for 2018 Topps Chrome baseball cards higher on average than other sets? There's a very high percentage of PSA 10s relative to other years of Topps Chrome. But when I looked at SGC, their percentage of 10s was a lot lower than PSA. If you can buy SGC 10s for a lot less than PSA 10s, and it looks like they're handing out fewer of them, that seems like a real opportunity to turn SGC 10s into PSA 10s if you wanted to buy and sell them right? Buy them, crack them, and sell them. That, that actually is an excellent strategy. Some people are doing that, it, not arbitrage. But Eric, it's a long-term strategy. Short-term, yeah. it probably doesn't work. Right, because right. Perceptions don't move that quickly. But if more people start doing that, the gap between nines and tens and the gap between tens and tens across com- companies, you know, yeah. long-term, that could be a really good play. A PSA 10 is gem mint, but a BGS 10 is pristine, which is supposed to be another notch above that. The market, in some cases, values that, but in some cases, does not put a premium. And so another approach on this is that you need a double-blind kind of experiment. On the other hand, you don't really have matched pairs. I've heard this argument before. People who are submitting cards, particularly modern cards, are submitting them expecting a 10. Now, I I just bought a 1961 Fleer Ted Williams because I want the career stats on the back. I love that card. Bought it from my local card shop. I'm not going to submit that for grading. I'll put it in a one touch. But you submit vintage cards, you're expecting the range between one and 10. But people submitting modern cards are expecting 10s, maybe nine. So I would say that there is a lot of matching in terms of who's sending what where, right? Like the people who are submitting to PSA and the people who are submitting modern cards to SGC and BGS... They're all expecting 10s. I think the samples are similar enough that people who say that you you don't have matched sets, I think they are pretty closely matched conceptually right? in, a, in a naturalistic experiment. Yeah. Now, you're speaking as a non-grader. What has happened in the last year is the rise of the pre-graders, yeah. the bulk submitters. As the price of grading goes up, there's more scrutiny in advance. Some of these bulk submitters get a much higher percentage of 10s than others, because they're able to weed out those who are going to be certainly below a nine. That's a good point, because you could account for why PSA assigns more tens to the cards if they are getting more bulk submissions. That's actually a great point that I hadn't thought of before about the difference. I, I would still say that the differences I was observing between PSA tens and SGC tens were significant enough that probably wouldn't account for it. I think it's the fact that SGC has a 9.5, but you make a good point that the bulk submitters are probably making a difference in the 10 rates. If you were to do an experiment and compared rates, you could have an evaluation, a rating, but some bulk submitters are a lot better than others. Right. Some of them are former graders or who have been asked to join these companies to be a grader because it's clear that they are really good at it. So their batting average for 10s they're going to have a thousand cards, but they're only going to submit 500. 
Right. Whereas some right. pre-graders are better than others in terms of accuracy. When we started out, Mark Anderson was one of the early leaders in our company. If two graders looked at it, he could find some stuff that the other people hadn't seen. Now, once right. he pointed out to them, that's why he was our head grader for many years. He would point it out and they'd say, oh, I didn't tilt the edge that way. I didn't yeah. look at the corner from that angle or, or I, I didn't see the surface blemish or the gum stain that is just faint, but it is yeah. there and it's right. a, not a 10. I think BGS has a great esprit de corps because many of the guys that I that were there came under my regime are still there because they love working together and it's very collaborative. That's not collusion, it's cooperation and it's, it's trying to protect the brand. Yeah. So if BGS or PSA or SGC got a reputation for leniency mm-hmm. or mistakes, that's bad. And actually, the, what problems of grading can you fix with artificial intelligence? The idea that there are human graders good at essentially making small adjustments to their sense of the card's appeal argues against the necessity for artificial intelligence. A computer being able to do what human beings already do. So we as the human beings give the computer the algorithm, how to determine what constitutes a a 10 or whatever. But there's also the idea of machine learning where the computers themselves start to build their own algorithm based on data. But the funny thing, putting a lot of money into technology to do something that human beings can do pretty effortlessly, to detect the difference between a scratch and a line on a card. That's something that you and I could do. We don't need to be expert graders to, to determine that. Ultimately, it comes back to what does the human eye see when it looks at a card. Now, There are some things that the scans can detect that human eyes can't see, but I'm not sure I care about things that I can't see when I'm talking about a graded card because it's it's supposed to be about eye appeal. Eye appeal, we're at not an inflection point necessarily. As we speak, the industry is evolving. The eye appeal is coming on strong and the actual numerical grade, especially if it's cryptic and it's hard to figure out why something had that low grade, Mm -hmm. they're going to pick the card that looks better yeah. That messes up some of these analytical services that want to give a predicted price for a card in a certain grade. When I'm buying Topps Chrome rookies, I don't want anything below a gem mint. I, I can't really account for that. I just like the 10. Speaking of psychology, there's something about being a perfect 10. Right. And that's why SGC and BGS are fighting against that ingrained thought that if PSA is a 10, that's a perfect 10. Yeah. But then an SGC 10 and a BGS 10 is a more perfect 10 <laughs> right, because right. it's uh, additional level above gem mint. And, but PSA is the volume leader and they've uh, established a standard in that sense. And so a, P- a PSA 10 is their best grade. Now, if PSA was to have a 10 plus, an 11, as Spinal Tap would say, it goes to 11. That would mess up the simplicity of their market leadership. Yeah. I I don't think the individual examples that people can point out about cards, one being a seven and looking better than an eight. I don't think that devalues the idea of grading because that just is going to happen. Thinking back to your stats days, if you had inter-rater reliability above 80%, like that's considered almost perfect. But that means in one out of five cases, people disagreed on the grade. One out of five, like think about millions of cards. There are going to be a lot of examples where people would disagree about those grades. But that doesn't make it a scam. That just means it's something that is being evaluated by human beings. In a vacuum, you're right. Now, we, we did some experiments like that at the beginning of BGS, and we found that the inner rate of reliability in the collaborative conference aspect was enhanced 
by having the subgrades. Yeah. That, that there could be consensus if they all looked at it and conferred. If, if there's just one single grade and somebody says seven, somebody says it's an eight, reconciling that is, is trickier than having the four subgrades. When I was there, the really big cards, the influential cards, there was more than one person evaluating and grading it. Yeah. And they'd come to a consensus for a final resolution. So I think that helps with that. Yeah. I'm uh, curious what you think about the Gretzky Opeachy cards, because I have seen highly graded Gretzky cards that have the craggy edges because of the wire cutting that look way worse than similarly graded cards that didn't have that on it. And to me, that see, like that strikes me as an actual problem with grading. But I was glad to see the PSA is doing away with their qualifiers because that strikes me as something that ruins the system a little bit. But it strikes me that you can't say OPG Gretzky rookies, but got craggy edges just to be expected. So it's going to get a nine. Whereas it seems like, no, that should get a six because there are Gretzky rookies out there that have clean edges. Those are the ones that should be nines and tens. Dilemma because the, the clean edges were not, uh, as Jeremy Lee of Sports Cards Live would say, they weren't pack pulled. The OPG cards. Oh, they, really? That's the way they came. So it, it was sheet cut later in many cases where you, oh. where you see the, the, the clean cut. And that's Thanks. the big battle between BGS and PSA in their interpretations of that exact card. I think it's healthy to have more than one company doing grading. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it helps to protect the industry in some of the ways you're going at is that if a uh, company is considered to be unreliable, and this inter-rater reliability thing is going to be even a bigger problem if training of these new graders who are coming on like gangbusters. You Mm -hmm. hear about how these PSAs hired so many people. I just was talking to Jeremy at BGS. They're all greatly expanding and they're bringing in new people. Unless there's proper training and kind of an apprenticeship or something, you you could have some mistakes slip out, which is very damaging to the brand. In fact, the damage to the brand is not for being too tough. It's like many things in psychology and psychometrics is that the types of errors are not equally punitive. Overgrade is different than undergrading. I don't think that collecting is a, a nature thing, that you're born as a collector yeah. I think it's more of nurture. You see it, you know, like for you, a friend brought you into it. And you know, this is interesting. You found you really enjoyed it. So there's a nurture aspect to it. I used to work with the Washington State Twin Registry. We were able to work with twins to do research on health and health outcomes because twins let you ask questions about nature and nurture contributions to human traits. Law number one of behavior genetics is everything is heritable. If you were to look at most human characteristics, personality, IQ, height, weight, all these kind of stuff, everything is heritable. So I would bet if we were to do a study of twins and their interest in collecting, we would find that it's somewhat heritable, that identical twins are more likely to both be collectors or both not be collectors than their fraternal twin cohorts. So there is something about it. Nurture is the bigger component. Yeah, but there is a heredity or a nature yeah. component. We talk about a collecting gene. Yeah, uh, everything is polygenic, right? There are multiple genes that contribute to these kinds of traits, and there's how genes get expressed, right? It's not just the structure of the DNA at a particular point, but it's also whether or not those genes get turned on and off, and that's something that our environment can influence in ways that we didn't know about 10, 15 years ago. 
Is there anything abnormal about the collecting psyche or noticeable that you've noticed in the last year and a half? Not that you've had any character or personality transformation, but to what extent is everything rational? No, it's not, but you wouldn't expect it to be, right? The idea that humans are utility maximizing rational beings is just demonstrably false. People make decisions based on what have been called heuristics, simple, fast rules that help us make decisions. They help us make decisions in relatively simple situations. And so the more complicated situations get, the more these heuristics tend to fail us. Collecting is not just going out and looking for the things that you want or the things that you think are going to escalate in value. It is listening to podcasts and it's going on Twitter and seeing what other people are saying. And all the FOMO just really influence us in ways that make us irrational beyond what we already are as <laughs> irrational beings. And I think the anger that gets expressed on Twitter is very much irrational. And I've never really understood why people treat each other as badly as they do. Is the antidote having a safe community or you're not advocating a pill? <laughs> no, that's a whole other conversation that we won't get into. But yeah, community is great. Our local card shop, I love going there, talking to other collectors and just seeing what's going on. I think community is, is a really good way to do it. Definitions I've used for hobby is something you can pick up and, and yeah. enjoy at any time. Right. The problem is in the self-awareness, in the psychology aspect, is are you able to put it down? Exactly. <laughs> because if you can't put it down. In fact, I'm wondering if this episode that we've done here is insights, but isn't insight what psychology is about? About developing and self-understanding and other people understanding and yeah. development of, uh, don't counselors try to help people with insight? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think, again, it relates back to grading. You want to be able to sit down with somebody and decide relatively quickly how you can help. Some of that the person's going to tell you. It's like the card is going to show you what it's got, but the person is going to tell you what's going on, what the problems are. And every once in a while, there's things that you can't see with your eyes. You can't hear with your ears that, that it takes some time to develop that insight to understand these patterns over time in people and in cards. There, there is that similarity for sure, where the fact that I've been doing this for 20 years, sitting down with people and listening to their stories and talking with them makes me different from somebody who's done it for two years. If you sat down with a grader and the grader showed you, again, it's like a disconfirmation bias. You yeah. know, when you hear from the grader, here's why this didn't get a 10, you're thinking, you're exaggerating that because people have difficulty being objective. Yeah. Uh, and well, so and it's I could grade your cards, you could grade my cards, and each one of us would think the other one was too tough. 